Have you ever felt threatened by another person's beliefs, doubts, or questions? Have you ever felt uh, or acted on the urge to distance yourself from that person? Or maybe have you ever lost friends or been estranged from family because they seemingly couldn't handle you not agreeing with them about something? Or maybe a bit less severe. Have you recently been blocked by people who you actually know on social media because of something you posted or some comment you made or because you liked someone else's post or maybe because you didn't say something or didn't say the right thing? Yeah, me too. Have you ever had to choose between ideological alignment and a relationship with someone? Or have you ever had someone choose ideological purity over an authentic relationship with you? That's exactly the dynamic that starts to take shape in the book of Job. Tonight, we're looking at the second cycle of speeches between Job and his three friends and the tension between adherence to ideology and authentic relationship with people is ratcheted up to a breaking point. If you haven't heard um, the previous two talks of this series, um, I'm going to try to teach tonight in a, such a way that you'll still get something out of it. But like I said last week, everything is going to make much more sense and be more meaningful to you if you listen to those preceding talks. Every week of this series builds on the previous week. So tonight we're going to be focused on uh, Job chapters 15 through 21. And again, um, we won't read through these chapters in their entirety, but I, I will highlight key parts and try to summarize the whole thing. Please do yourself a favor and read through them on your own. Uh, this collection of chapters, maybe more so than any of the other cycles and sections of this book, actually read incredibly quickly. Each chapter is really only about a page or so long, so it's, it's really manageable. And again, I highly recommend reading the message version. To <laughs> It's much more accessible and easier to understand what's going on. All right. So let's get into this talk, which I've entitled uh, Relationship Over Ideology. If you recall from last week's talk, uh, which was called Honesty Over Flattery, Job's three friends essentially each take turns saying to him, Job, you're a good man. We all know you are, but everyone makes mistakes. Look at all this suffering that you're enduring. It's clear that you've sinned in some way and God is punishing you for it. So just admit what you did and repent and, and God will restore everything that he's taken from you. And Job the whole time insists, I'm, I, I'm more than happy to admit my wrongdoing and repent of it. If someone can point out to me what I did wrong, because I really have no idea. And so I'm not going to lie to God and pretend to repent when I don't know what I'm repenting from. If God is worth worshiping, I have to believe that he prefers my, my honesty to him over the empty flattery that you're asking me to throw up to heaven to just magically make everything okay. See, Job's friends all operate within a transactional view of their relationship with God. That is, if you do the right thing, God blesses you. And if you do the wrong thing, God punishes you. Pretty simple and clear cut. And at the beginning of the book, Job seems to kind of be on the same page with them. But as we go deeper and deeper into the story, we'll see him increasingly reject this ideology and instead insist on real authentic relationship. So we start this second cycle again with Eliphaz making a speech. Remember last week, though, he, he says some really careless and callous things. Eliphaz's tone is gentle and it's meant to be encouraging with Job. That all begins to change in this second cycle. Eliphaz begins by saying in chapter 15, 
if you're really so wise, Job, would you sound so much like a windbag belching hot air? (laughs) A windbag belching hot air. Man, that's so good. Try that next time you're in an argument with someone. And (laughs) when I read this, my dumb brain instantly thought, man, I bet Job can relate to this. Do you ever feel like a plastic bag drifting through the wind, wanting to start again? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, for some reason, when I read a windbag belching hot air, my mind instantly goes to some of the worst lyrics ever written (laughs) by the plastic bag enthusiast and luminary Katy Perry. I'd apologize, but this is on her. This is not my fault. Now, if you feel like inserting random Katy Perry lyrics into this talk on Job is inappropriate, you're probably right. But it's all so heavy that I'll take any lightheartedness wherever I can find it. Anyway, the crux of what Eliphaz is saying uh, is captured here, uh, starting in verse 17 of chapter 15. He says, I have a thing or two to tell you, so listen up. This is what wise men and women have always taught. Those who live by their own rules, not God's, can expect nothing but trouble. And the longer they live, the worse it gets. Eliphaz says, Job, this is what we've been taught and known for centuries. This is what people far wiser than you have been saying forever. So get this in your head. Evil people live in fear of the inevitable punishment from God that will surely come to them. Though they don't know when, they know God will completely devastate their lives. It's what he does. It's the way it works. What Eliphaz is really doing here is is implying to Job, look, your life has been destroyed. The only people whose lives are destroyed like this are evil people. Therefore, you're an evil person getting what you deserve. Job responds first by calling Eliphaz a windbag right back to him, which is cool. And basically says, you guys are terrible friends. If you were in my shoes, I could totally tear into you too, but I'd never do that. I'd try to, you know, actually be a friend and comfort you. I'd try to make things better, not worse like you're doing. Job pleads with his friend, look what's happened to me. Look at all this death and devastation. Everyone has rejected me. I could use some real friends, but you're all so much more concerned and more appalled by my response to what's happened to me than the terrible things that have happened to me. What's wrong with you? Maybe you all want to start this whole speeches to me. Maybe you guys want to start this whole thing over because so far the only hope you've offered me is that eventually I'll be dead and that's no hope at all. Towards the end of Job's response to Eliphaz, we start to see the beginning of what will be a recurring theme. And if you read it, you'll see this. Um, Because everyone else has abandoned him, Job begins to realize that though he feels like God is doing this to him, his only hope now is that God will intercede and protect Job from himself, from God. And he starts pleading with God to vindicate him and to redeem him while still holding God responsible for what's going on. It's really complicated and messy. So that's Eliphaz's speech and Job's response. Now we get to Bildad, everyone's favorite friend named Bildad. 
So, this week, Bildad gets to his turn to be the biggest jerk of the three friends. Last week, it was Eliphaz. Uh, this week, Bildad wears that crown. In chapter 18, Bildad tells Job, quit grandstanding. Quit pretending like you're the exception to the rule that we all know. That being, the wicked get what they deserve from God. He goes on a long diatribe in this vein about how the things that the wicked get that they deserve, the punishments that God does to them, eventually saying in verse 19, that the wicked are plunged from the light into darkness. They're vanished from the world and they leave empty handed, not one single child, nothing to show for their life on this earth. What just happened to Job's kids, all of his kids? They were just killed in a freak accident. Bildad is saying only wicked people are punished this way. Only the most evil and wicked people see all their children die. Therefore, Job, you're clearly a monster getting what you deserve. See, again, Bildad has this transactional view of God and, and his comforting notions of reality, his ideas of how the world works are being threatened by what Job is claiming. And like many of us, when our foundational beliefs are threatened, Bildad reacts really poorly. And he says to this guy that's supposed to be his friend, what makes you so special that the way that the world works should be undone for you? Get over yourself. Evil people get what they deserve. Their, their lines are ended. Their children are all wiped out. Man. Job's pain and his suffering... And coupled with Job's insistence of innocence is so threatening to Bildad's ideology of how the world works that instead of comforting Job, he tries to reassure himself by attacking Job. This is such a primitive but all too common response to our notions of reality being called into question. And it's why far too often people who suffer or people who doubt and question begin to feel unwelcome, uh, begin to be ostracized or are outright just kicked out of their churches. Their situations threaten the established conventional ideology. And rather than confront that cognitive dissonance, it's just easier for people to attack and reject the person. It's just easier to choose ideology over relationship. What Bildad says here undoes Job and his response may be the most heartbroken and defeated expressions in the entire book, maybe even the entire Bible. In chapter 19, Job is beyond distraught, and he says, why do you continue to attack me? Can't you see I've literally lost everything? Can't you see my heart is already crushed? Why do you have to pile on? God has taken everything. Everyone has abandoned me. I'm repulsive to all the people I love, including the three of you. Why can't you take pity on me? And then Job utters what might be the most famous line from the book. It's not as recognizable in the message version. Um, so I'm going to read it from the NIV translation. So this is chapter 19, verse 25 from the NIV that says, Job is saying, I know that my redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. Now, if you've grown up in or were around the church at all in the 80s and 90s or, or 2000s, you've likely seen this line engraved on all kinds of knickknacks, uh, Bible covers and pottery and, uh, gosh, bumper stickers and 
bookmarks and anything that you could find being sold at the Family Christian Bookstore. And maybe if you're like me, when you see that line, you instantly hear this little gem from 2000 that is forever etched in my brain. It's actually a good song, but this one line has been prolific in its history throughout um, the church. Now, not only is this quite possibly the most famous line of the book, it's also a bit controversial, as I alluded to last week. And I had a whole thing written about it, um, but I had to cut it out. We don't have time to get into it. And, uh, but I, I didn't want to just pretend like I didn't say that we were going to talk about it. Um, really the overall meaning of this verse doesn't change regardless of where you fall in the controversy. It's one of the places where the Hebrew is ambiguous, so it could mean two different things. And if you're curious, we can talk about it, but we're going to move on. What is clear here is that Job is crying out to God and appealing to that dimension of God that, that cannot tolerate the reduction of human beings created in his image to anything less than human. Job has lost everything. He's been reduced to a shell of a human. And on top of it, all of his friends are pushing an ideology that reduces his children to being just basically worthless pawn pieces in God's hands. And it reduces, it reduces Job down to being a subhuman evil monster. And not to mention, it reduces God to being a completely knowable, predictable, and controllable machine that simply responds to input with reliable and predictable output blessings or punishments. After Job responds to Bildad, uh, it's the third turn. It's the third friend's turn so far. And he is just relentless as the first two. He essentially says, Job, how do you not understand? Like, this is so simple. How do you not understand the basics of how the world has worked from the very beginning? Though they may uh, get to live it up for a short time in the end, the wicked always end up in utter agony. And as he says in, in verse 28 of uh, chapter 20, life is a complete wipeout for them, the, the, the wicked, nothing surviving God's wrath. Again, this friend of Job is saying that the kind of loss and pain and suffering that Job is experiencing is the exact punishment that always awaits the wicked. Therefore, Job, you are obviously evil. You are a monster and you are getting what you deserve. And Job, to his credit, still responds to this very callous and simplistic friend, addressing key weaknesses in this friend's ideology. Job says, starting in verse uh, 17 of chapter 21, he says, uh, still, how often does it happen that the wicked fail or disaster strikes or they get their just desserts? How often are they blown away? by bad luck. Not very often. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. Job says to his friends, let me show you how flawed and simplistic your ideology is. You say evildoers don't get to celebrate very long, but always eventually get the punishment that they deserve. It'd be nice if that was the way that the world worked. It'd be nice if the world was that simple, but in truth, far too often, the wicked seem to actually prosper and get away with evil, don't they? Job closes out this cycle by saying, I know what you all want me to say. I know what you all want me to believe. 
but I know who I am and I know who God is and I do not accept your ideology. Man, it's intense. Now, when we look at this cycle as a whole, we, I think, in my opinion, begin to see why Job is so revered and why he is remembered. It's not for his patience in suffering because he's not patient while he suffers. But it's because at the height of his pain and suffering, despite all of his anguish, despite all the pressure from those closest to him, despite everything and everyone around him telling him he's wrong, Job stands firm in his convictions. He courageously rejects the conventional ideology that produces God, himself, and other people down to disembodied abstractions, to just parts of a lifeless equation. And instead, he boldly insists on authentic relationship with himself, with God, and with others. When we look at this second cycle as a whole, what I want you to notice here is that throughout these first exchanges with his friends, Job's friends continually resist relationship in favor of their ideology, increasingly aggressively so. At first, Job's friends are somewhat gentle, and though they don't pull any punches with him, they are attempting to encourage and help him. And they say, Job, deep down, we, we all know that you're a good person. You've just made a mistake. Just repent. They nicely say to him, just get in line and say the right things and everything will be fine. But when it becomes clear that Job won't do that, that he won't get in line, when it becomes clear that he doesn't buy into their ideology, they shift and they start attacking him. Where they first described him as their friend, a good man who could be redeemed if he just repented, they now basically describe him as the face of evil itself. It's as though they say, forget redemption. This monster's getting what it deserves. And they have proof. They say, look, Job, you're ignoring what is painfully clear to many of us. Everyone who isn't an ignorant fool knows that this is true. Look at all these wide, wise elders that have been saying this for centuries. Look at all our politicians. Look at all these best-selling authors. Would all of us really think this if it wasn't true? Get over yourself. You're not smarter or that much more special than everyone else. They say, we know that what the truth is. We know that you're an evil person getting what you deserve. It's obvious. And the mere fact that you disagree with our conventional wisdom proves that we're right and that you're an evil person getting what you deserve. Job's friends choose ideology over relationship. Job's friends choose simple, reductionistic, comfortable, black and white, either or delineations of reality over the complexity and mystery and genuine empathy that real relationships with other living things require. And in response to his zealous friends, Job consistently stands firm and says, no, screw your ideology. I know who I am. And I may, I may not know exactly who God is, but I know that he's not the machine that you think he is. I know reality is not this simplistic I know it's not this either or reductionistic world that you envision. I reject this conventional wisdom that reduces us all down to heartless abstractions. And instead I demand authentic, honest relationship between me and myself, between me and God and between me and even all of you, my so-called friends. 
See, Job could have justifiably told his friends to GTFO many times at this point. Leave, get out of here, you guys are the worst. But instead, he continues to plead with them. Even as they attack him and dehumanize him again and again, he keeps pleading with them to see what they're doing to him. And he keeps engaging with them, pointing out where their ideology, where the logic in what they're saying just doesn't make sense and doesn't square with reality. I think Job foreshadows the ministry of Jesus, who time and time again reject, rejected the heartless ideology, the misguided conventional wisdom of the day that dehumanized ignored and discarded the lost and the broken, the damaged and the littlest and the least. Ideology that said, if you're suffering, it's your fault. And instead he, res- he insisted on relationship that sees people as people and cares for people as people and not ideas or categories. Jesus rejected transactional theology that that renders God as heartless and deterministic and instead inspired us towards cooperating and co-creating and joining with the God who is love itself to heal and restore the world again, not to have transactions with. Jesus continually rejected and challenged laws and customs put into place Uh, that demonized and vilified people and instead redirected the focus toward love for God and for each other. And time and time again, he was confronted by people who wanted to choose ideology over relationship. People who were so committed to their notions of reality and so threatened by Jesus and his views of the world that they eventually murdered him. We're living in tumultuous, polarized, and highly ideologically puritanical times, my friends. And in the coming weeks and months, you will certainly have opportunities to choose between ideology and relationship. You will have the opportunity to choose your side while rejecting and reducing other people down to their side. You'll have the chance to choose between rejecting people who don't align with your ideology in the way that they think or live or vote or to instead choose to push into deeper relationship with them and refuse to see them as anything less than a beloved creation and imperfect reflection of love itself, especially if their beliefs disagree or even threaten your own. By and large, the conventional wisdom of our day says that it knows more about your identity, more about who you are than you do. The conventional wisdom of the day is highly reductionistic. It is either or transactional thinking. The pervasive ideology of our our day is obsessed with power achieved through polarization, division, and dehumanization of everyone, but especially anyone who stands against it. My prayer for us, people of TNL, is that we will do the harder and bolder and more courageous thing, that we will be like Job and like Jesus and stand firm in our commitment to love to choose the third way, not the either or the or, but to love. My prayer is that we will be people who choose relationship over ideology.